All right, as promised, we're going to dig back into our archives and play for you some excerpts from our previous interviews with Ambassador Joseph Wilson. As you will recall, the Bush administration apparently took a dim view of the op-ed piece that Ambassador Wilson wrote in the New York Times. In the wake of President Bush's uh, statement in his State of the Union address that uh, Saddam Hussein was getting perilously close to having nuclear weapons. This was completely uh, essential to the ramp-up to war that was then going on, a hot war against Iraq, which did indeed start in March of 2003, and his actions, which consisted of informing the public that uh, the statement that Niger was supplying Iraq with yellow cake was false, and he knew this because he was the guy that we sent to investigate it. As a reward, his family was personally attacked by having his wife's identity as a CIA operative blown. What's especially odious about this tale is that Valerie Plame was being employed by the CIA in the area of nuclear proliferation. It's a sordid chapter in American political history, which involved leaks from the very highest levels of the American government, meaning like the top two guys in either the president or vice president's office. And when it all played out, I, Scooter Libby was the fall guy. But let's go back to when we were speaking with Ambassador Wilson as these events were transpiring. Ambassador Wilson, welcome to Radio Parallax. How much danger do you feel your wife has been subjected to as a result of her being outed? Well, clearly we've had to, we've had to adjust our own personal security as a consequence of this. Um, after all, it is, uh, it is 20 years of, uh, of a career uh, that has been now exposed. Uh, we worry probably most of all of, of uh, people who um, are malcontents, who somehow blame the CIA for everything that's wrong in their lives. It's being countered uh, by apologists that your wife was an analyst and not undercover, not running covert operations, has been widely reported, uh, investigating security issues, and therefore was not, it was not really illegal to reveal their identity to Robert Novak and others. Well, I mean, I'll, my only answer to that is uh, that the um, CIA would, would not have um, referred the case as a potential criminal matter to the FBI frivolously, so they must believe that there's something, uh, something to this. And uh, the uh, law is very specific about uh, covering um, what they call operatives, uh, case officers. The Bush administration denies that Karl Rove said that your wife was fair game, saying instead that um, he was merely postulating that it was reasonable to ask if it was your wife who had sent you to Niger. I have contemporaneous notes. Um, Karl Rove, first of all, I understand that the White House uh, said that he didn't talk to anybody. Now they're saying that he did, in fact, say something. Um, my own credibility, uh, when, when, when pitted against the White House, I'm batting about three for three, and the White House is batting zero for three on this. First of all, on the whole Niger case. Secondly, on the vice president having actually asked the question when he finally fessed up to that. And then most recently when uh, they've had to backtrack on whether or not Rove spoke to a journalist. I have uh, every reason in my contemporaneous notes also uh, quote very directly his saying my wife is fair game. And I stand by that. I mean, I have no reason to believe that the person who told me that would, be, would have had any reason uh, not to have been accurate. Uh, he put the, the the term in quotes when he told it to me. He said to me, 
I just got off the phone with Carl Rove, and he tells me, quote, Wilson's wife is fair game, unquote. Fair enough. According to Newsweek, you got calls from several well-connected Washington reporters, the names of NBC correspondent Andrea Mitchell and uh, MSNBC cable show host uh, Chris Matthews have surfaced since then. Will you be identifying uh, some of these reporters? Well, no, what I said was that I would I would certainly share everything I knew with those who were doing the inquiry, which I've done. Okay. Um, I don't know, uh, other than Mr. Novak, uh, I don't know who might have been in that first six that were apparently contacted by two senior officials uh, in what might have been a, uh, a criminal violation. Um, I do know that um, Andrea Mitchell was contacted in the second batch, and she was she reported to me that senior White House officials had told her uh, that um, the real story was um, not the 16 words in the State of the Union address, but the real story was my, my myself and my wife. Now, remember here that I went out there at the request of this administration, and I brought back a, a report that just happened to be the truth. Uh, now, mine was one of three reports. Those three reports from U.S. government officials or people who had association with the U.S. government um, myself, the ambassador on the ground, and a Marine Corps general all said there was nothing to this story. Uh, somebody in the White House decided they were going to believe a report that did not even have uh, sufficient credibility to make its way into a, an Italian tabloid. Um, they decided they would, that would pass the truth test for them. Uh, and they, as a consequence, inserted the lie into the President's State of the Union address. So who was badly serving the President of the United States? Was it those of us who brought back the truth and tried to protect him from this? Or was it the person who decided they would put the lie in the State of the Union address? We, should, we have a very uh, web-savvy um, audience, so I would refer them to the Internet for the actual text of the article that originally you wrote for the New York Times, where you outlined uh, what happened as regards your going over to Niger. Uh, you close that article by saying that an act of war is the last option of a democracy taken when there's a grave threat to our national security. More than 200 American soldiers have lost their lives in Iraq already. We have a duty to ensure that their sacrifice came for the right reasons. And, of course, issues about what were the right reasons are sort of central to this, uh, this whole scandal about weapons of mass destruction not being found. Sure. Uh, there were three pillars that uh, underpinned the justification for going to war. One was weapons of mass destruction, in particular the strategic weapons, the weapons of strategic concern to us, i.e. nuclear weapons. The second was operational ties to al-Qaeda, which of course is non-existent. And the third was the liberation of Iraq from, uh, from the iron grip of a, of a tyrant after 30 years. Now, the problem with the third one, of course, is that when you rationally, as we do every four years, determine how you're going to use our soldiers, our military force, uh, we generally determine that we will use it in our national interest. We don't generally fight wars of liberation. One of the reasons, by the way, we don't fight wars of liberation is because populations uh, often um, resent uh, our occupation in the aftermath of the so-called liberation. And so it's difficult to sustain the political will when the population is not fawning all over you yes. and appearing liberated. That certainly is the case now in Iraq. Does your wife's being compromised as a counterintelligence officer warrant a special prosecutor rather than leaving this matter in the hands of John Ashcroft's Justice Department and FBI? Well, I would, I would remind you that the crime that was committed was not a crime against me or even a crime against my wife. It just happens to be our names are, are, are somehow tied to it. It's a crime against uh, my country. Uh, and uh, I have every confidence in the, in the professionals at the FBI. 
Uh, I do think it's a legitimate question for the executive branch to ask itself, uh, given uh, the close ties between uh, Mr. Rove and Mr. Ashcroft in the past. Um, I'm glad that Chuck Schumer and some of the other senators up on the Hill have pursued this vigorously and urged the administration to act in a way that ensures that there's not even the perception of a conflict of interest. What do you predict for the future as regards this issue of intelligence being used and misused? Well, I think it would be a shame uh, for the intelligence um, agency to be scapegoated in this. Uh, if you go back and you look at the timeline, the decision uh, on the war was made uh, well before the national intelligence estimate was ever produced. In my judgment, uh, uh, from the very beginning, the facts were manipulated to support the decision that had already been taken. So that is not a problem with the intelligence community. That's a problem with the politicians, the political leadership of the country, having decided they would selectively use facts, as in fact they did in the case of uranium from Niger. They yeah. used only those facts that they thought, or only those bits of information, whether they were facts or not, that seemed to support the conclusion that they'd already reached. That's a bad way to go to war. Yes, it is. A final question. You've served, uh, you've served both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. You were in Iraq. You were, in fact, the last American diplomat to meet with Saddam Hussein prior to Gulf War One. Any comments on the efforts to smear you and your wife as being partisan in the issues being raised? Well, uh, first and foremost, um, both my wife and I are proud American citizens. Uh, both of us have raised our right hand at one point or another and sworn to defend the Constitution of the United States. We are patriots. We've actually served our country, not just served political parties. Thank you for joining us on Radio Parallax. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, we had a chance to talk with uh, John Dean, he of Watergate fame, about uh, the, the incident involving Ambassador Wilson, and here's what he had to say. Now, Ambassador Joseph Wilson's appeared on this program to talk about what happened to his wife after he challenged the administration, and you seem especially taken aback by the outing of Valerie Plame. Why? Well, it's one of the dirtiest tricks I've ever seen, uh, and I've seen plenty of them from my days in the Nixon White House and just as an observer of presidential politics. This is life-threatening. Uh, it was a clear effort to try to discredit uh, Joe Wilson by doing it and turning on his wife. It, you get pretty low, and he not only was her life threatened, but those with whom she was dealing in her capacity or professional capacity as a covert operative put their life in danger. You know as soon as her name was surfaced that every country in the world where she'd had any dealings uh, were running their computers looking to see who she dealt with, checking her phone logs and records and what have you. And we don't even know the consequences of what may have happened uh, at this point. Well, he's not mincing words on that, is he? And finally, we'll do an excerpt from Valerie Plame's book, Fair Game which I think is especially relevant uh, in the light of last week's conversation with Russ Baker about uh, Watergate. This comes from Valerie Plame's audiobook and reminds us why when we get Russ Baker back on the program, we've got to talk a little bit about Mr. Bob Woodward. Later that same month, another bombshell. Exalted Watergate reporter and prolific writer Bob Woodward testified under oath on November 14th that another senior administration official, not Libby, had told him about me and my position at the CIA nearly a month before Novak's July 2003 column. According to a statement that Woodward made to the Washington Post, the paper where he nominally serves as assistant managing editor, he did not believe the information about me to be sensitive or classified. In light of this new information, the dynamics shifted again and Libby's lawyers hastened to claim that it undermined the case against their client. Apparently, 
Woodward did not disclose his involvement in the case to the Post's executive editor because he feared being subpoenaed by the special prosecutor. He later apologized to his editor. I explained in detail that I was trying to protect my sources. That's job number one in a case like this, Woodward told the paper. I hunkered down. I'm in the habit of keeping secrets. I didn't want to do anything out there that was going to get me subpoenaed. When news of Woodward's unconscionably late testimony broke, I was deeply disappointed that he had chosen to react as a journalist first and a responsible citizen only when his source outed him to the special prosecutor. As David Korn noted in his blog for The Nation, what compounded his problem was that Woodward had gone on television and radio shows to dismiss the leak investigation and criticize Fitzgerald without revealing that he had had a personal stake in the matter because a source of his had been a target. It was not Woodward's best moment. And we have here a clip from, uh, the, from both participants as they were speaking to Robert Greenwald, noted uh, film documentarian who we've also had on this program, about the movie. Somebody, somebody said today, I think it was Tavis finally said, uh, are you prepared for the right-wing backlash and reaction? And I said, well, if it was, if it was me advising them, I would advise them just to let it go. Um, but if they want to engage in round two, that's fine. We will fight round two, and you'll all get to see the sequel. <laughs> well, that's a perfect introduction to one of the clips we picked when you do, you're on the phone and you're telling Valerie, uh, we must fight back. Hey, you're welcome. Hello? Valerie, turn on MSNBC. They've launched an investigation. Ashcroft just announced it. They say he's going to convene a grand jury. Hold on a second. If the FBI now is conducting a criminal investigation into who leaked the name of the CIA undercover... They want me to comment on the investigation. Joe, just hold on. We've got to fight this. We cannot. We've got to push back. tried to buy enriched uranium and not... I've got another call. i got to go. Joe! Joe Wilson. Joe, it's Chris Matthews. I just spoke to Carl Rove. He told me, quote, Wilson's wife is fair game. How close to reality is that particular moment? When did you find out and how did you find out and your re reactions, each of you, to that horrible quote? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really true to real life. And so Carl, or, um, uh, Chris did call me. And in his own breathless fashion, he said precisely what he said. And then he said, I got to go and hung up. So that's when we knew. And fair game, of course, is a, is a term that is used by hunters when game is in season. Mm -hmm. it's, go, it's okay to go out and hunt my wife. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, my reaction was something that, that is probably not, you probably can't repeat, mm -hmm. even in an R-rated mm -hmm. interview. <laughs> Writing in Beyond Cron, San Francisco's alternative online daily, Peter Wong said about the film, Plain's memoir, Fair Game, provides the film's source title. But the term itself comes from the Bush administration's view that ruining Plain's career was a reasonable response to Wilson's publicly challenging the administration's lies. The irony comes from Plain's frustrating position. Because she honors CIA confidentiality, the ex-CIA agent is stuck in an unfair political game where she cannot fight back even when a clueless television, quote, reporter, unquote, characterizes her as a third-rate secretary. Readers disgusted with the Republican Party attempts to rehabilitate George W. Bush may be frustrated that Director Lyman, 
directs insufficient venom at, at that toxic, unlamented presidency. Nor does the film ever deservedly blast Bush administration media enablers Robert Novak and Judith Miller, both of whom had roles in this affair. Anyway, we refer you back to our own archives for full, uh, full copies of both interviews we conducted with Ambassador Wilson. I also chatted with him over at Cap, Capital Public Radio, and I believe that's still available at capradio.org slash insight in their archives. Anyway, after seeing uh, on the big screen the sacrifices that uh, Valerie Plame and Joe Wilson uh, had to go through for doing you know, what in, in both their cases was the right thing, makes me enormously pleased to have been able to play even a small role in helping get their story out, which I guess we're doing again today. makes me feel damn good about doing a radio program. On that note, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.